My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today I'm joined by Wolf Tivy. Uh, he or Tyvee? Am I pronouncing? Ivy. 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 Everyone gets it wrong. It's okay. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm Romanian, so I sometimes sometimes that sneaks out. <laughs> um, he is the editor in chief and founder of Palladium Magazine. Welcome, Wolf. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I, this is this is going to be a lot of fun. I think I, I really enjoy your work sometimes. So it's uh, it's great sometimes. to be here. I love that. <laughs> sometimes. Well, look, I, you know. I can't I can't say all the time you know I'm I'm not I'm not going to give the highest possible praise yeah well I I will work assiduously to live up to your expectations well (laughs) (laughs) um so I've been I've been looking into you and apparently you're a mechanical engineer and it looks like you're a family man and uh now you're not a mechanical engineer anymore you're not you're not in in your in your initial profession you're at the helm of this unique cultural product um yes. what was it called that sells luxury governance and this is yeah, your l- luxury time. political theory we do luxury political theory yes uh, um yeah i mean you can take the engineer out of engineering but you can't take the engineering out of the engineer so i you know it, it's not quite accurate to say that i am no longer a mechanical engineer but uh yes i'm no longer working in that field so what happened i guess was uh, 2014, I basically realized that the engineering work that I was doing or likely to do basically wasn't the future. It wasn't where the future was going to be made. The problems that were sort of most interesting to me were not the ones that could be solved with technology. They were the problems that needed to be solved with philosophy. And so I was around that time starting to build a network of intellectual friends who were also thinking similarly that there were a lot of problems with our society, you know, as is probably a common theme on your podcast. And um, those problems needed to be solved, first of all, by thinking about them and understanding where we stand in history and and where we want to go, how to make governance work. So that was, that has really been the focus of my activities for the last, I don't know, what is that, seven years? Um, and, And sort of most recently, this is manifested in Palladium magazine. We basically decided at some point along the way that the correct uh, move for us was to create a public high quality outlet for our ideas that could, I mean, attract attention around it, but also serve as this discourse center for us, help us meet new people who are thinking this way, help us really develop those ideas and help them get them, help get them into a form that people could start to take seriously if there was something there. So that's that's really the genesis of Palladium Magazine, how I went from engineering to um, luxury political theory. And um, I think we still take, you know, a very kind of technical worldview to the whole thing. Uh, a lot of the people involved, a lot of our top writers tend to be from a more technical background or at least very familiar with the, the technical. And I think this is actually uh, a really important thing 
this is something that maybe has been neglected in the American ruling class, as you see a lot of lawyers and, and so on, but you don't see a lot of engineers. Um, meanwhile, in some other countries, you know, this isn't a universal thing. In other countries, sometimes you, you do have engineers at the top, China, Iran, for example. Um, and I think it's very important to understand how to think in that technical manner and, and how to think about, about the actual uh, scientific and industrial enterprise that are the foundation of our society. So yeah, I, I think there. I think the engineering brings something to it. Um, it certainly shapes how I think. Okay, but there, there's not like a, a dearth of engineers in Silicon Valley. Um, how much? Yeah, but what are they actually overlap? doing? Right. Uh, <laughs> are, I mean, is Silicon Valley Valley represented among the among the people who who are writing for Palladium, who are in these intellectual circles, or is it a a different cohort? It's interesting. I think we have like one foot in the, into Silicon Valley and one foot out. So obviously we are friends with a lot of Silicon Valley people. Most, I'd say like the biggest single concentration of our readership is in San Francisco. Um, but we don't see the world entirely the same way as like the tech ecosystem. Um, and, you know, we're trying to do something very different, right? Like that, that, that kind of milieu is very much about building companies. It's about, um, it, it's about this particular form of techno optimism, which is kind of cool, but, but it's it's not the way we're thinking about it. We're thinking much more like, no, not how do we solve problems with technology, but how do we use um, rigorous, more technical thinking at a conceptual level to understand human society and reshape human society. So that's actually, a, it's a difference in emphasis. So we have one foot in and then one foot out. We've just got people from all over, people from, from um, you know, very different industries and, and from the humanities and, and all of this um, in our milieu. Yeah, it sounds like a, a very ambitious project because you were talking about reshaping human society, if, if, I, if that's a correct quote, I'm not, not sure um, if I'm quoting you correctly. But uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, um, is, I mean what, what level of abstraction are you, you working on? Is this a because you're you're selling kind of governance or luxury political theory, luxury governance. Is this um kind of a, a mirror for princes or a manual for bureaucrats or somewhere in between or even even at a higher level of abstraction? Um, yeah. So okay, how do we how do we approach this? What's the what's the impact model, so to speak? Um, we're obviously not targeting immediate political impact in the sense of you know elections or masses of people with opinions um and i don't think we're really targeting the sort of writing for eternity sort of thing that you know ends up being the legacy of of great philosophers but we are targeting more on uh, you know a 20 to 50 year time scale we want to change the worldview of the of who will be the most influential people over that 20 to 50 year time scale and to do that, we're we're operating at a fairly high level of abstraction in terms of okay, how, what are the historical forces we're looking at? What is how does human civilization work at that level of of attention? How do you govern it? What is what is the fundamental thing going on with governance? Is it you know is it about kind of like staffing up institutions and then tweaking the knobs to to like optimize the utility function, or is it about something else? I mean, in our opinion, it's it's about something else. It's about um, coordinated, highly competent <clears throat> elites who maintain basically a 
power hegemony in society. And this is always how it works. There's always some elite that's in control. And the question really is, are they well coordinated with each other? Do they have a clear um, vision that inspires them to, to, to rule and to reshape the society under their control? And uh, is that vision any good? Are they actually trying to make society work better? Are they trying to make something glorious? Or are they just kind of interested in, in their own wealth or, or in, in sort of this self-referential uh, patting each other on the back for, for you know, having the ideas worth spreading or whatever? Um, and yeah, so, so we're really trying to pull off um, or at least contribute to, I mean, it, it, sort of how much of this we actually accomplish is it, we're a little bit agnostic about that. We're trying to contribute to a shift in the consciousness of America's future elite, but more broadly, the, the West, the future Western elite. So, um, yeah, we, we try to kind of keep the quality level as high as possible so that it's, it's native to the people who I think are thinking as as carefully and intelligently as possible so we're not trying to dumb it down we want a, the most sophisticated worldview we can get them um at the same time it's you know we're not going deep into some technical jargon we're we're trying to keep it accessible to people who might not have studied this stuff but should be yeah it's it's interesting because you're you're essentially kind of making the case you're not even making the case you're making the assumption this is the belief of palladium kind of elite theory the fact that you know um yes you know, democracy might not necessarily be either a, a, a well-defined um, model of how things actually work or a functioning model of how things should be governed. So I'm, I'm curious, what, what is Palladium's relationship yes, democracy. to democracy? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you hit it there. It's like, yeah, we don't necessarily, how do I put this? It's like, maybe democracy doesn't matter whether you have it or not is actually the small detail of, of your system. And it's not the determining factor. The determining factor is, do you have a competent, coordinated uh, and benevolent elite? And, and like, you know, one way to view that is that democracy is an elite ideology. It's not a system of governance. It's an elite ideology. And, and that's where its actual impact comes from. The actual impact comes from the fact that in a democracy, elites are educated to think um, in accordance with democratic ideology, which is that they are given this, this reason, which is like the people will vote you out, um, to govern well. And sometimes they take that reason seriously and they govern well. Other times they don't take that reason too seriously and they realize that they don't really need to govern well because actually the thing about the people voting you out is a little bit fake. Um, they don't actually get voted out. Um, and, and so the actual impact is not whether the system is democratic or not, it's do they believe that they need to govern well? And, and do they have an ideology that they're coordinated around in how to do that? And so when democracy works, that's why it works. Um, and so this, this actually you know, comes back maybe to Plato, like democracy is, is the so-called noble lie, which is you know, obviously a mistranslation, it's, it's the, it's the sort of national myth. It's the myth that motivates the elite. Um, and you could go more directly for, well, why don't we just articulate why good governance is a good idea? Not why you know, you're being coerced into doing good governance, which is I think a, a, a sort of an abusive way to frame your ideology, which is fundamentally what democracy is. Um, but you could just say, well, here's why governance is a good idea. 
good governance is a good idea because you can accomplish all these glorious things. Look, here's all these things we could do as a society if we thought of ourselves as sort of, um, you know, a collective uh, political community that has aims beyond itself. Maybe we want to, you know, explore off world. Maybe we want to develop this industrial revolution thing, see where it can go. Maybe we want to build a, you know, a very beautiful ecologically integrated civilization. Maybe we want to, um, you know, master the problems of, of the human condition in terms of poverty or, or, you know, creativity or whatever, right? Like there's, there's all these things that we might get inspired by. Why don't we just directly get inspired by those and then say, okay, how do we accomplish that as an elite? Um, and, and the way you accomplish that is by having a, an energetic coordinated elite around some vision like that. And so this is a background assumption that Palladium makes is that, okay, we don't actually have to worry too much about the democracy thing. And within that assumption, you can go and reanalyze what democracy is. Well, democracy is this bureaucratic procedure that we use partially to get feedback from the population and partially to uh, help us decide who's in charge. There always needs to be some sort of decision procedure that, that staffs the actual um, offices of the republic, right? If you, have, if you have a sophisticated state, it's probably some kind of republic in the sense that it has offices, it has officers. These officers you know, can, be, can be swapped out. Um, and so you need to decide who is sitting in what office and has that authority of the state. And, you know, we use democracy to do this, or to at least to some extent. And, and as that kind of mechanism, it's basically, okay, can the elites agree on who is going to sit in that office? Can people basically defer when it's not the guy they wanted? Um, you know, there's a bunch of these very practical questions that are mostly about, can the elite agree among themselves? um on who's in charge of what office and then and then yeah like just getting feedback from from the population there are other ways you could do this they do things differently in china right like they have different ways of choosing who the officers are things are a little bit messier over there as well though um but they and then they they have other ways of getting feedback from the population they they, they use a lot of big data kind of stuff um so but if you look at democracy just as a technical mechanism within the institutions created by an elite to enable its rule to work well, um, I think you just get a very different picture of it. And yeah, so we take all that kind of as, as our background way of thinking. Um, you know, maybe democracy is actually one of the best mechanisms for, for uh, accomplishing governments. Maybe we have better ones. Maybe we need something different. Uh, we're kind of agnostic on that front, but but what we're not agnostic about is just like reframing the whole question of it's not about this sort of systems of government thing. It's about do you have a coordinated, competent elite? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so elite theory, we, we take that sort of as our grounding and then we, we go from there, right? What do we want? As our, if, if we're imagining the future elite of our society, what do we want to be believing? What, how do we want to be seeing the world? How do we want to be seeing our responsibility to govern? Um, what do we want to do with this sort of nuclear armed hemispherical civilization that we have like we've got something very powerful here what can we do with it right uh, surely we can do more than we are yeah i think one of the the, the theories that is uh, floating around in the ether and in, in, in our corner at least in my corner of the of the internet is that you know again about democracy it's that it's 
not necessarily just a mechanism is that it's it acts as a smoke screen for things that you know like you said you know what what is presented on the front is not what happens in you know in the in the back room mm-hmm. um yeah i mean unfortunately democracy kind of um is a bit of a like propaganda thing it's this big ritual right it's this big public ritual that reaffirms the established elite ideology and um and and so like most people are basically caught up in in the sort of the ritual of it and the and they they sort of play their roles within the ritual but but the actual substance of it is that it it um it reaffirms the the elite ideology and and that obviously goes much beyond just democracy it's also into this individualism stuff it's it's into sort of the structure of the motivations of the elite um and so i think i think that's sort of maybe the the positive way to say it another way is of course that unfortunately um within a democratic society and, and a, a liberal society you get certain distortions um sort of put into the the public discourse like the idea that there are two parties rather than one regime um it, it is kind of this distracting thing people ask like well why isn't there a republican new york times well it's like asking why aren't there two regimes in this country it's a nonsense question like why would there be two regimes in one country it doesn't work like that that's called it that's a civil war right um and so I, I think people get like the ritual of democracy is very distracting. It distracts from the actual machinery of the thing. And um, that could be useful, maybe. Um, but I think right now in history, the actual machinery of the thing is really needing a lot of attention. It, it's, it's breaking down. So obscuring the actual machinery, obscuring the actual power is not doing us any favors. Yeah. Do you? That, uh, that you know the actual incentive set by by democracy you know the the essential uh chasing of of client subgroups um and you know the the huge managerial apparatus that is needed to create the front you know are all kind of contributing to to this decay of our executive function the fact that you know things mm-hmm. aren't really getting done there's not really any direct line everything is very intermediated by these layers upon layers of people um not sure this is you know it, it is downstream of democracy um but it's also i guess part of the the kind of the, the overwrought managerial state that's been been built to to maintain the system as it is mm-hmm. yeah it's the way i see that i mean it's certainly the case that our current system is very inefficient and a lot of that inefficiency is, um, if not directly caused by democracy, it's like encrusted upon democracy. You know, there's this incredible inefficiency of maintaining this this like Washington D.C. political culture. There's this incredible inefficiency in maintaining a mass media that needs to basically be brainwashing people to to vote um, and to be mobilized in the right ways every four years. Um, there's an incredible inefficiency in in the ways that attention is like directed off of governance and onto politics. Um, you know, so I, I think there's there's definitely like an encrusted efficiency upon democracy. Whether it's caused by democracy, I'm not so sure. Um, I think definitely there are some bad incentives there, but like and and like just structurally, I, I'm not sure it 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 works out, but you could as easily imagine that the system could be just as messed up without democracy. And so I think, again, the real question is not like, 
what system of government do we have? Though obviously we should have good and efficient mechanisms that don't have failure modes. We should as much as possible try to understand the system um, on those terms and, and come up with solutions uh, on those terms. But but um, the actual core of it is all systems are mortal. They decay and die. They get bloated. They get cancer um, over time. And this is just what's been happening in America. We had this great exertion in the world wars. You know, we we kind of went from this relatively isolated power to being essentially world hegemon. Um, and it, and and that was this great exertion of energy, but it required kind of restructuring our internal um, social fabric and institutions, social technologies quite a bit. And it actually broke a lot of, you know, one reading is it actually broke a lot of the, the sort of error correcting um, organic elements of our society that, that were, uh, that were really the backbone of the health. And then, you know, after a generation or two of, of this like bureaucratic modern industrial war state, um, the thing broke down and kind of went into stasis. So that's around 1973, you know, through the 60s, you've, you've got this very obvious like coming apart politically of the system. And then it sort of gets frozen into this uh, neoliberal pattern in, in the 70s and, and 80s, where you, you have some kind of revolution, but the revolution is basically to stop the machine. It's just to stop the machine. And like things basically haven't moved that much since then because there was this revolution to stop the machine. And there, was, there were good reasons to stop the machine. It was like destroying a lot of, a lot of things. It was, it was out of control in some ways, right? But it was this machine that we built through the world wars. And um, so if we look at that as the story of American society, then it's basically like, okay, well, that's not directly traceable to democracy. That's traceable to, we had this huge mobilization we made trade-offs in favor of long-term, of short-term efficiency um, against sort of long-term elite um, coherence and and kind of functional ideology, and we're just in the long, slow um, realization that that the whole thing is frozen and, and like no one knows how to operate this machine anymore. Yeah. So. Um, you know, as, as a democratic country, I think if there's going to be big change, it's going to have a democratic component, right? Probably a populist component, just because that's how these things go. But, um, and that, that's sort of the legal mechanism by which you do things. But in terms of, is democracy the, 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 the single causal mechanism? I and mean, some people think it is, some people think it isn't. I, you know, I go both ways on this, but I, I think formally I'm agnostic. Yeah. Um, it, it is interesting that essentially the Palladium magazine is, is aimed at elites, as you said, or, or at forming elites or at informing a certain, you know, elite. Yeah, I mean, potential, potential elites. I mean, it's a little bit too pompous to say we're like aimed at elites because like the readers are not yet elite um, and maybe will never be. But there's sort of the way I think about it is there's this other you have to sort of reorganize your coordinate system a little bit. Um, there's there's sort of up down, which is, you know, at the bottom you have the uh, the underclass and at the top you have the current elites and in the middle you have the middle class and then there's but i think i think 
if you start talking about, oh, we're targeting elites, you, people think, oh, we're targeting like the top of what currently exists. And I think rather we have to introduce another dimension, which is left-right on, on the, um, I don't mean left-right in terms of like political compass, I mean something else, but um, the, let's say on the left, you've got kind of the mainstream of society, you've got within the institutions, the current structure, the current order, and then on the right, you've got this sort of space of, of pure kind of outside the, outside the system potential. And over there, like, you know, right now, maybe, maybe the exemplar of that spot is like the Taliban. They're, they're like very outside the system. They're very distinct from the system, right? There's something else. Um, now that's obviously quite distant from our society. Within our society, maybe it's like weird subcultures that aren't really contributing to the main uh, vertical of society, but, but are um, thinking about things in different ways. And, um, you know, and maybe that's organized crime or it's, it's some of the more like conspiratorial elements of the current elite um, you know, some of the, it, it's, it's the inhomogeneous, right? It's, it's the stuff that's not part of like the main structure. There's the main paradigm. And then there's like all this kind of outlier stuff. And the outlier stuff is where the new potential comes from. And I think there's a lot of people there and there should be a lot of people there who are thinking like, well, I'm kind of agnostic whether I end up being a king or a monk but I'm going to live a certain way. I'm going to think a certain way and I'm going to dedicate my life to that way of being. And that's very different. And that, that, that way of being is going to be different from what currently exists. And that is the thing. Those are the people I think we want to target, right? So it's like, you have these people who are actually in this state of like high uncertainty, high potential because they're taking a leap of faith into different ways of being. Um, and maybe they end up being elites, maybe they end up being weirdos. Um, but I think like that's the actual mechanics um, of it. So it's, it's like, yeah, we're aiming sort of at the, the upper end of that by the, by the kind of vertical dimension of, of sort of like how, how successful are you, I guess, within current society. Um, just like our audience is you know, relatively well off, relatively well educated. Um, you know, capable people, but, but really we want to like shift people sort of over towards this, this outside of the current paradigm mode of being. And we want to appeal to people who are over there. Not too much though, you know, like we're not, we're not being read by the Taliban, you know, that's, that's not useful to us. It's more like the people with one foot in one foot out. Um, and so I, I guess that's how I see the, the sort of eliteness thing. I mean, sorry, that's like a long explanation of, of how we relate to eliteness. Um, and I, I don't know, if that, does that answer your question or were you gonna answer, ask a different question? Yeah, I, it, it does answer a part of my question. Um, uh, essentially, I think my question was more around this concept of noblesse oblige, which is essentially how the, the relationship that elites, you know, at least in theory, had with uh, with their subjects, with their client classes, in uh, in in years past, and there was a bit more of a you know disintermediated way, uh, you know, if if the elites would piss off their 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 client class uh, for a very long time, they would you know revolt and change the elite in a very direct way. Um, I feel like the current moment is, is um, 
you know, has these multiple layers of obfuscations of, of who is actually in charge, who's actually doing things. And maybe no one is actually in charge because that's essentially the, the, the kind of this emergent managerialism where that, you know, because no one is in charge, that's why we can't build the new bridge or why it takes 15 years to, to build it because it's, you know, it's, it, the, the machine needs to churn it out through all of these, you know, pieces. So uh, what, what's the relationship? So what's, what's the, how will these, I mean, how, in your vision, how will the elites of the future, you know, what you're building towards, um, relate to to their client classes in a way, um, mm -hmm. without this direct mechanism? Because I don't, I don't know if, if we're still within the, the framework of democracy, if we still, you know, have to build, have to build alongside the, the managerial behemoth. Um, is there any way to incentivize these people without any skin in the game, uh, without yeah. their? Yeah. So I, I think again like noblesse oblige, skin in the game, uh, the feedback mechanism, this actually all comes down again to this question of elite ideology, um, because even in a democracy, the elite can in fact just stagnate for decades and decades um, and face essentially no accountability for that. Um, the, this is just the way, um, I don't know, the, the way things actually work in, in reality is that when you become powerful, you can use that power to entrench yourself and it can be essentially impossible to dislodge you. In, and you know, no amount of democracy is going to change that. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you know, some people like to deny that, but that is, I think what we're seeing is that we have a very entrenched, um, I won't call them even an elite, it's like an upper middle class, but we have a very entrenched regime, a very entrenched system uh, and paradigm, and there's there's very little that can be done democratically to change this. Largely because you know it's not like the people's in opinions are this like exogenous force to the system. They're part of the system. They're shaped by the system. They're organized by the system. So the system has simply set itself up in a manner that work like shapes those opinions and organizes those 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 efforts into further perpetuation of the system. So like this, this is sort of the critique of kind of populist electoral politics right now is like, oh, well, that's great. You can elect some people, but you're just electing people that like the system knows how to digest. You're, you're organizing in ways that the system knows how to digest. So yeah, the basic background fact, elites are not accountable to their subjects. It doesn't really work. Um, who they are accountable to is God. And, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is if they in fact just sit there and stagnate, they will eventually be wiped out because they will fail to have prepared for, for real exogenous forces. They will fail to be coherent among themselves um, and, and keep their, their thing unified. Um, they will decay to the point where they are no longer able to control their subjects and their subjects can become warlords and, and you know, parallel elites and whatever might happen um, or you know they might be conquered from outside that this is like this very very visceral sort of uh, way that this could happen but even if there is no outside you still have this problem you, you still are basically subject to if you don't do the work of being a virtuous elite eventually you get destroyed and um, this is a, just like basic facts of natural law essentially um, all organisms are subject to this, you know, if you don't work, you don't eat. Um, and, and the way an elite works is 
they govern their system well, and the way they eat is they get to accomplish that, that growth of their whole system. So really it comes down to do the elites of a system have that vision to do something with their base of power, with their clients, their subjects, their, their empire? Do they have something they want to do with it? And do they do the work? Do they have the discipline? Do they organize themselves to actually do that work? If yes, they're probably going to be fine because they are actively sort of striving against reality. They are actually out there doing their thing. Um, and and that, that's where life comes from. That's where health comes from. But, you know, if they become more focused on, you know, I just want to retire on my yacht. I just want to, like, protect my secrets. I want to, like, you know, keep going to Epstein's Island and, like, not face any accountability for this. Well, you know, you're not really doing your job. And eventually God's going to fire you. Um, so... But I think, I think like the key thing is like, where is the actual accountability mechanism? The actual accountability mechanism comes from reality, not the subjects. And I think this is maybe one of the toxic ideas of democracy is that it convinces the elites that they're at war with their subjects. Rather than their subjects being assets, they become liabilities. And, it, you know, it's, it's like, oh, the subjects are going to be disobedient. The subjects are going to vote us out. We have to brainwash the subjects. We have to control the subjects. The subjects are what we have to be worried about. Right. Whereas, no, actually, like whether you're doing civilization is what you have to be worried about. Um, so, again, it's really just comes down to like, do you have this outlook or that outlook? This is not a, I think like incentives can only be constructed within an outlook. It's it's um, it's only once you have the sense of what you care about that that thing can be threatened um, and and that you can respond to that threat. So, but, but really this, the question uh, for, for elites is, is what do you care about? What is the worldview that you're operating on? And I think in this case, as far as accountability, like you have to realize that your accountability is to reality, not to your subjects. The subjects are assets that you are working together with and organizing and, and leading towards the, you know, whatever glorious vision you have. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any real glorious visions right now as a society. That's my, uh, my next as, question. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like you're on a religious mission. Yes. Um, well, we'll talk about that. Um, but you also asked this question of like, is there even anyone in charge? I think the answer is no. I think they're basically, you know, like you, you can sort of see the outlines of something like a regime, but it kind of doesn't work anymore. It's failing. And I think this is something that, you know, I especially see among among kind of like so-called dissident scenes, people are always like, oh, you know, they're so powerful. How are we ever going to do anything? You know, what our, our, all we can do is complain about being oppressed. And like, this is kind of what goes on in like the conservative world. And, and so on. it's just like people complaining about being oppressed. And it's like, okay, whatever, man. The, the actual reality is you're going to win by default if you are even trying. And the only question is, can you do the work well enough that when you win by default, you're actually able to do something with it. Like the system is, as it currently stands, is failing. The, the, the order is fading, right? It's not, it's like becoming more insane. And that insanity is, is death, right? It, insanity for a regime is, is death. So it's like, yeah, it's lashing out harder. No, it's not getting stronger. It's, um, it's dying. So you have to see things, I think, from this perspective of like, okay, our job is not 
to be opposed to the system. Like, you know, the longer the system lasts, honestly, the better, because it's, it's actually still holding back the, the tide of chaos, so to speak, and giving us time to work. What we need to be thinking about is, okay, how do we build a coherent elite? How do we build the next generation of elites who are going to be um, stewarding this, inheriting and stewarding this system um, and this civilization? And so I think that's the productive way to think about it. And it's like, no, there isn't really anyone in charge right now. The WASP elite basically failed. Nothing really replaced them. Um, and there's, there's sort of these like, various conspiracies and various little interest groups and so on that have their their, their like systems of patronage within the system, but no one's really in charge. Um, and, and, you know, to your point, that is the source of a lot of the dysfunction. It's actually just no one's in charge. No one's able to act above the institutions and shape the institutions. Um, they're able to evade the logic of the institutions where, it's, where it suits them, but they're not. Um, that's because like no one is enforcing the institutions, not because they are in fact elevated. Um, anyways, that's, that's my answer to this question of like, how do elites relate to the system? How do we, how do we think about elite accountability? That kind of stuff. Yeah, uh, and another thing that I talk um, a lot about on, on this podcast is um, essentially kind of what, what is the ideology of the moment? It is, um, let's call it like hyper-liberal individualism. Um, you know, the, 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 the perspective sure. is, uh, is on yourself, like you said. You know, there the the wasp police failed, and there's no one, no one in there in their wake. There's, uh, you know, their children are on Epstein's island. You know, getting, uh, you know, stimulated from every every corner. Uh, maybe rising in the status ranks that are already there, but not really interested in creating anything new. Um, you know, I think to me that it, it feels very hard to dislodge that perspective because it is a comfortable one it kind of tingles in the, in the, in the right places you know lizard brain is pretty pretty chill mm -hmm. being being stimulated by all of these things and um if if you are also have kind of a materialist worldview there, there isn't really much to anywhere to reach out you know if what where, where does the, the hero myth come from or where do does the inspiration or you know does it have to be something metaphysical that comes into the into play or is there a way to um i don't know to build elite ideology in a very secular way where you know the dreams of 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 the future are enough yeah so i think you're asking essentially like the spiritual question within this whole thing um i think Within the materialist worldview, um, even, you look at the commitments of people who are, you know, having fun on yachts with underage girls and, and so on, all the things that they do. Um, what is going on there is it's not they like don't have a spiritual commitment, it's that they have a spiritual commitment to the pleasures of the self. And like, that's what they're inspired by. That's the only thing that they could think to do with their power. Now, obviously, this is like a, a small segment of, of kind of the current elite. That's one faction, I think. Um, but I think, to your point, like individualist sort of um, liberal, like liberal individualism, unfortunately, has come to be essentially that for a lot of different orientations. It's, it's essentially that like, we're focused on the self. Now, I don't see this as being a consequence of like a materialist worldview or something. This is rather, what it's just orthogonal to that. Or materialism is about like your metaphysics, like what is the world made out of? It's not about what's important. 
um, because you still have what is essentially a transcendent commitment. It's just to your own titillating pleasure rather than to something that you want to accomplish or some principle you want to serve. Um, and so I, I, I see it as totally orthogonal to the metaphysical question. Um, mind you, I think, I think if you think clearly about the metaphysics, you realize like what the hell's the point of sort of stimulating the self. It, it's not actually interesting, but maybe you realize that anyways, without, without uh, resorting to metaphysics. I think what's happened with liberal individualism as it has ended up constructed, I think in its original conception, it was actually this really interesting idea. It was, we're going to liberate these powerful, strong individuals from established dogmas to enable them to be the visionaries who are like pushing things forward. And they're going to actually build visions, these transcendent visions. The individuals are going to build transcendent visions that they then go and mobilize society behind. This is heroic individualism. That, that was, as far as I can tell, like the original conception of individualism as, as sort of believed by, um, you know, Mills and, and even I was reading Emerson the other day, like this is, this is how they think about that stuff. Um, but it became this thing of like, oh, we're just going to retreat into the pleasures of the self. And I think it's, it's like in some way because the system we actually got was about stopping thought on the big questions. And rather than trying to answer the big questions with this exploratory individualistic process, it actually became about stopping thought. It became, you know, Karl Popper's, you know, open society and its enemies, which is to say, we have to destroy anything that might actually change anything um, and, and, and hold this like permanent stasis of, of like false possibility. Um, that, that's, that's sort of like Popper's idea summed up in a, you know, in my negative reading of it. But um, the, um, yeah, so there's this, this question of, of like, what then can we be inspired by? How can we get out of that? And I think it's just when you view this as a question of sort of just ideology, it's like, what are you committed to? What do you want? Make, make these things like these things are, in fact, on equal footing, like individualism is on equal footing with, you know, forms of theism and uh, forms of, you know, some some glorious vision that you might have. And, and it's just like, which one are you most compelled by? Because they are actually arbitrary. They are just values it's which one resonates um they're, they're not things that can be proved um you can certainly like challenge them you can find little contradictions like okay the end point of individualism is is psychopathy right because you actually don't care about other people and if you do care about other people well then you have some synthesizing um principle to do that and then that is this vision that you're chasing and they they tried to get out of that with utilitarianism, where it can be like still agnostic about the individuals, but somehow synthesize them together. But like, you know, if you examine utilitarianism a bunch and you really think about it, it's actually, and you think about its actual consequences and you decide whether you like those consequences, it's actually kind of abhorrent, it's, it's evil. I won't go into that, but like utilitarianism is a fairly evil ideology when you actually take it seriously. Um, so rather, what you you inherently have this question of okay what is the vision that i have for 
the cosmic order and my place within that cosmic order. And, and once you're actually thinking about that, you've escaped kind of the thought stopper that I think characterizes our dominant sort of philosophical position. Um, then, then there's this question of just, again, which visions are we compelled by? What, and, and maybe this is where the metaphysics come in, comes in, but it's certainly where the, the visions come in. Um, and I think it doesn't have to be religious necessarily, or well, it doesn't have to be religious in the sense that most cosmic people, order. So there is something your interpretation yeah. of cosmic order is, is yeah. So it doesn't have to be religious in the sense that most people mean. It does have to be religious in the sense of like you know the original meaning of religious, like religio binding, right? It's like are you bound by some system of of um, principles and and transcendent values and it's like yes you're going to have some real essentially religious system um i think though people get this weird idea that the secular modern scientific worldview is not a religious worldview and of course they will admit that oh yeah science is a religion like once once you once you like poke it but um people don't take that seriously as like maybe it's a religion that we could believe in um it's just that like i, I think again this thought stopper thing in one reading, this is an interesting reading I've heard, the thought stopper is a reactive, it's a reaction, a, a fear reaction to what science implies, like an actual scientific cosmology. And because an actual scientific cosmology, when you take evolution seriously, you take um, co the cosmology seriously, you take technology seriously, and you you extrapolate those things out, you get interesting um, you get a view of things that can very easily be taken as an essentially like um, religious vision of a certain kind of progress and a religious vision of how society works and what society is for and what we are for and, and so on. And, and like that work hasn't really been done. So I'm not going to say too much about what details that might have, but in my belief, if you actually do that work, you end up with something that is very closely compatible, if not suggestive of um, essentially the monotheism, like Western style, kind of like Christian monotheism. And it's like the work has not been done to update Christianity in light of science or to extend science into theology. And um, I think once you do that work, those things don't look so distinct anymore. Um, and so I think that this is this is kind of yeah again we're we're getting into sort of the religious question I guess it is at the center of of the elite formation question because you have to have a transcendent vision to motivate an elite but um, we haven't focused on this very much but but this is I think the way it goes is there has to be some sort of additional new philosophical work new religious movements done in this area of like driving either the Christian or some other legacy religion forward into being actually compatible with actual science and driving science forward to integrating and dealing with questions of, of um, essentially theology and value. Um, and I think both of those projects are very possible and that's where interesting results can come from. But I don't see this like, <laughs> In some sense, that's just like taking the secular worldview seriously. It's it's just or or like or taking 
yeah, it, it's just taking like the modern things seriously. Like we live in modernity. Modernity is a particular historical condition in which we have science and industry. What does that actually mean? Uh, if you take all that stuff seriously, I think you end up in interesting territory. And I think the future um, motivational systems of, of at least, you know, what we can hope for, healthy future elites, will draw a lot on that kind of stuff. It will be some transcendent collective vision of what we're doing that is deeply scientific and deeply religious. That's kind of a, a the, the progress vision of it. You know, the, the negative side would be we all get ground into a fine powder by by techno capital and AI and, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think that's why people are afraid of it, because that is the inevitable endpoint. It's like humanity is 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 mankind the perfect being answer? No, we are not the perfect being. OK, can we create are we eventually going to create or create the conditions that create beings better than ourselves? Yes, we are, right? And wouldn't it be healthier though if we if we thought we were the perfect being and just, you know, kept it at that? <laughs> but that's pride. That's pride and hubris and it's, that's Christianity, it's like in a way. <laughs> it's and and I think I think this is this is like if you, it depends on what you identify with, right? Like, do you identify with the flesh or you identify with the principle that's animating the flesh? And if you identify with the principle with the principle that's animating the flesh, then you know we can identify with with futures that use vastly different um, technological sort of stacks, like they have vastly different flesh. Maybe their flesh is silicon instead of. So you're a feminist. I think ultimately we end up there. I, I, for now, I'm actually like pretty anti-transhumanist. I think, I think it's all fake, but um, in terms of like taking the, the scientific worldview seriously and projecting us forward and projecting our destiny forward, I think you end up there. Um, but like, it's not this kind of self-worshipping transhumanism, which is I think what has become dominant where it's like, oh, we're gonna use AI to like enhance our pleasure or like whatever, like it, it, it's this really stupid self-referential visions, but it's like no, our our like glorious descendants that are smarter than anything else that ever has ever existed are going to like wage nuclear war across the heavens. Like that's that, that's like the glorious thing that's going to happen, right? Um, and it, you have to see it as an extension of like natural law and the beauty of of the whole evolutionary process that we've undergone so far. And like, yeah, it's going to be bloody. It's going to be crazy. It's going to be very dynamic and it's going to take a long time um but i think ultimately this is this is my worldview speaking right but this is like this is the process of creation this is the process by which god is manifesting into the world the kind of beings he wants to have a relationship with you you sound like you're gripped by religious ecstasy while you're you're saying this and i do like this religion i am an ideologue i am a religious Write it ideologue up. i might join it's nice is this the the bisons and the dyson sphere type thing i kept seeing that imagery is that where the we're bison going? sphere the bison sphere is a transitional step um in this in this vision so I, it's also a joke right it's an april fools article that i wrote um and i read it but, I, almost, I almost quoted it i was like lord <laughs> yeah well look this is i mean this is what i believe right um but it, that that was like a fun version of it i think eventually i'll i'll write more of this up but but for now it's like this is what motivates me but you know bringing it back down to earth we have we have these practical problems of governance as well that um that 
you know, we need we need to um, we need to organize ourselves to to approach those. Cool. Um, I wanted to ask you two more questions. Um, right. Would would Xi Jinping have anything to learn from Palladium? That's an interesting question. Um, I think he might learn how we think and what we're paying attention to. And um, I mean, certainly we would be flattered to to uh, hear that foreign government officials are reading Palladium to try to understand how to govern better. And some of them are. I mean, we we do actually have readers in foreign governments, so that's interesting. Uh, of course, also America. Um, but would Xi learn from us? I don't know. I would hope so. We we want we want it to be the kind of thing that that people can learn from. Um, but you know, obviously, it's not targeted at the problems of China. It's we're not we're not specifically addressing that. They they already have uh, they have great great governance futurists over there in China. Um, we just ran a profile on one of them. This guy Wang Huning, um, and very interesting stuff they've got a lot of interesting thinkers they yeah i i don't think they need our help they they've they've got things under control we need we need help <laughs> but that's hopeful but i mean maybe maybe i should talk a little bit about the the print magazine and and like sort of how we're seeing the the work we do um in terms of the material we output so you know i i said that we have two big concepts i think there's governance, futurism, and luxury political theory. We've, we've sort of, you, you were kind of mixing those together, but I think they're, they're two different things. So governance, futurism is sort of the overall project. This is what we've been talking about a lot through this episode is, is this question of like, what's the future of governance going to be? How do we approach it? How do we build the worldviews and the knowledge necessary to navigate that future? Um, as as future elites or people who want to support future elites, um, and that that's governance futurism. And then to do that, we we do luxury political theory, um, which is sort of the concept we use to describe our print magazine. So the concept of the print magazine. I guess we're going to be on video, so I should just show you the print magazine. Um, so this is Palladium One. Palladium One was our first one. That's on the subject of governance futurism, which is to say our entire project of kind of elite and regime formation um, aimed at the future. And then we have Palladium 2. Uh, Palladium 2 is on the problem of industrial civilization. And yeah, I mean, we we put these things together with, with beautiful art accompanying incredibly intellectual um, articles. I think there's some, yeah, there's some real good ones in here. I mean, I love this one in particular. Um, but, and then we've just put out Palladium 3. Palladium 3 is on modern China, something we obviously have to understand. So the, the basic concept is quarterly, we put out compilations of our best work combined with new work on a particular subject that and we try to really kind of lay a definitive foothold in that subject and and um, provide something that you know if you were to read this as an aspiring elite or as an elite or as someone in government or as someone running running institutions this is something that's giving you visions to visions and knowledge that are enabling you to handle that area so like industrial civilization, for example, it starts out with a crash course in industrial policy, three great articles kind of doing history of particular 
in particular industrial empires getting built up, especially in Asia, and then a theoretical look at, at how industrial policy works. So that's, that's again, this is just to, to describe like what is this print magazine that we do. We distribute it to people who support us. The project is a nonprofit. Um, people, people support the, the, the work that we're doing because they, they believe that it's, it's something valuable. And, and to give them an excuse to support us, we send uh, these print magazines as gifts to our supporters. And, and so a lot of people are, are it sort of like pushes them over the edge, right? They're like, oh, Palladium is a great project. I guess I should start contributing now. I, I really want these, these beautiful print magazines. So we put together something that we try to make it as luxurious as possible, as beautiful as possible, um, and, and as powerful as possible as like an intellectual artifact. But it can just sit on your coffee table. You don't have to read it. It can just look nice. But also, if you read it, you will be enlightened. So that's that's the idea with with uh, luxury political theory, um, and yeah, I mean, we're we're really proud of that. We put in a lot of work to to make it as beautiful as possible. We don't sell it. We're not we're not putting a price on it. It's just uh, this this beautiful thing we want to put into the world. We give it as gifts to our friends, our supporters. Um, uh, but of course, you can you can subscribe by becoming a supporter. So I, I just need I need to give you that plug, of course, uh, oh, to make sure that people know I, I, I what we do. I uh, echo the sentiment. I am the recipient of, I think, Palladium One, and it's a very beautiful, beautiful object. It is currently on my coffee table. I have to say I've read some of it, so I'm, <laughs> I'm one of those people. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a great project. I think people should uh, subscribe, should donate as much as they can uh, to, Thank you. To, to our future elites. Um, yes. I want to ask you the question of the show before I let you go. It's um, right. the final question. The show is: Do you have a uh, a beloved subversive that you think people should know more about, should read more of, should mm -hmm. find out about? Okay, I have two answers to this question. So, answer number one is that I reject the concept of subversion as a good idea. Um, <laughs> we are not in the game of subversion. We are in the game of construction, and maybe circumvention, maybe circumvention but construction. We are trying to build visions and ideas that improve the world around us, right? This is, and I'm speaking collectively here, like this is what we should be doing as, as a subculture, as a culture. Um, we should be aiming ourselves not to be subversive. Subver what is subversion? Subversion is just like, you know, you're throwing sand in the gears. Maybe you're, you're critiquing something. You're taking this sort of standoffish avant-garde approach where you you are acting superior to the system, but actually like, are you really doing anything? No, you're just kind of making things worse. Um, so I don't believe in subversion. I believe in construction. I believe in maybe circumvention. Anyways, that said, someone who has been involved in uh, a, 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 few, a few incidents of civil disobedience and, you know, um, heterodox rebellion from normal life and, um, certainly critiquing the system and our ways of thinking uh, quite thoroughly. In fact, this is the guy who, as far as I know, invented the concept of civil disobedience. Uh, this is Henry David Thoreau. Um, I think he's an absolutely essential reader for Americans because he is really the philosopher who tackles head on the, I think one of the deepest pathologies of, of American society, which is, the way in which we are sort of enslaved to our capital. And like this big point that he makes is 
that, you know, suppose you're wealthy, you have some big house on some big farm, and you spend all your time working to upkeep this and make it produce wealth and so on. What do you actually get out of this? Do you actually, are you living a good life or are you just working hard to perpetuate this wealth that actually isn't doing anything for you? So this is this big question he asked, and he answers it by like, you know, in the first chapter, he has this one of, of Walden, which is, of course, his most famous work. Um, he has this wonderful little thought that like, well, if someone was, was, you know, looking to just survive, there's, you could just buy a toolbox, you know, a seven foot by four foot by four foot toolbox, and, and, you know, close the lid every night, live in the toolbox, this is actually all you need. So he just like challenges you with these like insanely Spartan lifestyle ideas. But then builds on that with, okay, if we go and live an insanely Spartan life in his, you know, lavish, luxurious one room cabin in the, in the woods, um, what does that enable? It enables this whole life of contemplation of, of chasing enlightenment. So, you know, he's one of these transcendentalist philosophers. He's reading, he's reading the, the, the Vedas and he's, he's like, you know, this is back in the 19th century when this stuff is like not translated um, you know, he's doing this, this intellectual life. He's having, he's hanging out with his friends and so on. Um, and, and this is enabled by like a Spartan lifestyle of not, of seeing the material things purely as means to the ends that he actually wants to, to, uh, to chase and, and not uh, sort of rejecting as much as possible the imitative uh, wealth chasing that that basically enslaves everyone else in his reading. So I think this is an incredibly important idea. I think people should be playing with that more. I have an article coming up in our um, our next edition of Palladium Magazine, which is entitled. Um, well, we'll, we'll no, we're not quite sure about the title yet, but the theme is something like elite cultivation. Um, my article is titled "Quit Your Job," basically uh, advocating for people to not just quit their jobs, but quit the entire like middle class wage slavery lifestyle. Even if you have a massive wealth, you can still just be enslaved to that wealth um, and do something different. But I think Thoreau is really this, this thinker that I am very inspired by who, um, yeah, he teaches a Spartan life of philosophy and he doesn't, he doesn't dislike technology. I think something maybe people get wrong. He doesn't dislike technology. He doesn't dislike wealth. He wants us to have a wealthy and technologically enabled society, but he wants us to be worthy of it. He wants us to have ends that are glorious enough for our means. Um, anyway, so I think, I think people should read Thoreau. Okay. Yeah, that that reminds me of kind of a Ivan Illich's idea of, of you know creating tools for conviviality. It's it's a different thing. It's not like it doesn't have a heroic myth at at, at its core, but it has the communal myth. You know, the idea that you mm -hmm. know humans are communal animals and we should use technology as a tool rather than uh, have it use us. Um, yes. So thank you so much, Wolf. It's been it's been a pleasure. Um, yeah, sorry again for the uh, mix up, but uh, we're here. We we did it, and I'm very happy to have you on. Great. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much, Alex. Cheers. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. 
Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you. 